Thank you, Mark. So, evening, everyone. Uh, just in case you can't remember who I am, I'm Marcus. I'm part of the team here. And um, it's my privilege to share God's Word with you, particularly on um, the last in the series. We've been looking at Romans over the last number of weeks. And so it's my privilege to uh, wrap up the series that we've been doing on Romans. And for those of you that were here last week, uh, you may remember Paul spoke earlier on in the verses in chapter 8. And he encouraged us to remember that although we may be inherently leaning towards a sinful nature, he used this helpful analogy of the uh, scorpion and turtle and how the scorpion's nature is always to sting. And he also, I think, used another uh, picture that was helpful, that I found helpful, of the bowling ball that is weighted so that eventually it leans one way. If you bowl it, eventually it will go off in one way. And so, but equally that we may feel inclined occasionally to do things wrong or get things wrong, we're free from our sinful natures because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us all, dying so that we might live. So the appeal of sin is death, and I don't know how you could find that appealing. But we can better resist, I think, temptation, because when we say yes to Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in each side, one of us. See, the Holy Spirit is our witness. The Holy Spirit reminds us of who we are and constantly encourages us with God's love. Just before we get to our reading, the previous verses in chapter 8 remind us that we are children of God, heirs and co-heirs with Christ. We are no longer fearful slaves, enslaved by sin and temptation, but instead we are the master's children. You may remember that Becky Harcourt a couple of weeks ago shared uh, that we are no longer governed by our old master or old boss, which is sin, but instead led by our new master or new boss, which is God, our Father. So what an amazing privilege it is to know that we are God's children and that as co-heirs we share in the great treasures and his best gifts. In knowing his son Jesus, receiving forgiveness and having eternal life, a future spent with him. Harry, it doesn't stop there. I really want to encourage you that a life with Jesus means that, a life right now, not a distant future. Knowing Jesus means you can enjoy an ongoing relationship with him, a two-way, ongoing, at-the-second relationship that means you can go to him whenever you need to. He's always with you. He's never too busy. He's never going to say, just give me five minutes. He's the perfect parent. He's the bestest dad. He loves each one of us so, so much. And he's always with us. And really pretty much following on what Mark has just said. So pretty much, fantastic, job done. Let's go home. Have a cup of tea. Have a learning lawyer. I don't really think Paul will be too pleased about that. I mean, our vicar, not the writer of this letter. But I think what I've shared is a fantastic context to the passage that we have before us. Now, if you want to follow along, it's on page 1135 of the Church Bibles in front of you. And we're looking at Romans chapter 8 from verses 80, 18 to 39. There's 21 verses, pure gold, trust me. And I haven't got long enough. There's like about six or seven sermons in those 21 verses. But don't worry, we're not going to be here for that long. But 
hold on, it's going to be a fun ride. But in fact, if you look at the titles in Scripture, it talks about present suffering and future glory and more than conquerors, which I think is really a neat summary of what it means to follow Jesus. In fact, the opening verses of the passage is teed up quite nicely from the previous verse in verse 17 because we read that as co-heirs with Jesus, we share not only in his glory, but in his sufferings too. And so in verse 18 we read, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So as followers of Jesus, although we may share in his glory, and we might hopefully point people to Jesus through what we say and what we do, there will be a cost to that. Now, this is normally a type of persecution which can come in different forms. For first century believers, there was economic and social persecution, as well as the risk of losing their lives. And today, this is a reality for many followers too. You may recall that there was recently a World Watch List prairie at the Westminster Chapel, which I know a number of the folk from here went where the top 10 countries where it's a legal or even a death sentence to be a follower of Jesus was shared and prayed for. See, North Korea is the number one country on the watch list. And according to the charity Open Doors, who highlight these atrocities and report to government and help resource churches, that if any believers in that country are discovered, they're either sent to labour camps where the conditions are atrocious or they're killed straight on the spot. And the same goes for their families too. Christians have no real freedom in that place. Furthermore, over about 5,500 Christians across the world were murdered for their faith only last year, which works out approximately 15 a day. 15 Christians a day were killed last year, every day, for being a follower of Jesus. Plus, in the same time period, over 2,000 churches and church buildings were attacked, looted, or destroyed, or forcibly even closed. So this means that just like our first century brothers and sisters, the threat of death for many has not diminished. And so that threat of present suffering still exists. And even when in countries where Christianity is tolerated or encouraged, Christians must not become complacent. To truly live as Jesus did, serving up who Jesus is to people and resisting pressures to the world can exact a price. You can be mocked and made fun of by those around you and your family or friends. You can even be excommunicated by your family and friends for acknowledging that you love Jesus. So I also know that when you're a follower of Jesus, life isn't always going to be easy. See, when I was a young person, I believed in Jesus. I didn't see it as a problem. Mates took the mick out of me all the time. But I just thought it was natural to follow Jesus. I couldn't understand why you wouldn't. And when I grew up, when people said to me, what do you want to do when you grow up, Marcus? I said, I want to be a vicar. So I'm nearly there. And even now, I still cringe at how crass I was at Sixth Form College. See, my enthusiasm to share Jesus was such that I would jump up on the tables in the rec room and shout out, come to a prayer meeting or come to hear about Jesus at our local Christian Union event. Okay, because your eternal future depends upon it. 
And if you don't come, don't blame me if you still feel slightly warm in the future. I realized that that was slightly judgmental, possibly condemnatory. But that wasn't my, my heart. My heart was just to let people know that Jesus loved them and they needed to know him. But actually, I should have been more welcoming uh, to welcome them in and join, get them to join in and not feel condemned or judged. In fact, we saw earlier on in this chapter that there's no need to, no need to feel condemned. In fact, we read Paul's assurances that through the gift of God's son, Jesus, all humanity has been freed from the powers of sin and death. And that doesn't hold him in bondage anymore. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the freedom from this condemnation comes from the Holy Spirit living in each one of us, which gives us true life because of our relationship with Jesus. However, the full reality of this redemptive life in the future is in the future because we recognize that, as I've shared already, we're not free from suffering or persecution. And it may not be on the scale of those around the world. But it still can be not easy to follow Jesus today. And we don't always have life easy. So as you read in the first verses of 19 to 23, we see a number of references to creation. That creation is awaiting the children of God to be revealed, during which creation for a time is frustrated. But this frustration is ended when creation is liberated as the children of God are revealed. Then there's a period of creation groaning, and as the children of God, we also groan along with it as we await to be adopted into God's family. Now, I can appreciate you might be saying to me, well, what does Paul mean, Marcus? Now, how does any of this apply to me? And I must confess that when I was preparing this talk, I was asking the same questions. But I think in these verses, Paul is describing the ongoing reality of life in the spirit and that both us and creation need to be redeemed then you might ask well how does creation need to be redeemed surely we see these beautiful sunsets and these amazing features of natural wonder and beauty and if you're like me I'm a big kid at heart so when we had that snow just before Christmas I got so excited I went out and built a massive snowman I mean my kids are both at uni but I still built one and then sent them a photograph and tweeted it so you might say, oh, how can creation be, why does it need to be redeemed? And we all say, when well, we see something beautiful, don't we? We say, oh, there's got to be a creator hand behind it. Well, we know that to be true. But sometimes it can be easy, can't it, to romanticise nature and creation. And that they're pure and innocent. But then we just have to remember, don't we, what's happened in Turkey and Syria and in the earthquake. And the loss of life at last count. We believe there's over 42,000 that have lost their lives. Since the fall, creation has become spoilt and is out of kilter with what God wanted. Natural disasters, venomous snakes, melting glaciers, global warning, all point to how Paul understands a link between the fate of humanity and the fate of creation. Here, Paul understands that both us and the world are created by one creator, God, and as his creation we have a responsibility to look after the world and each other. See, in other words, what Paul is saying is that that he sees the fate of humanity and the fate of creation being inseparably bound to each other. For he understands that both creations, including us, both creations are created by the one creator God. 
See, sin has called all of creation, including us, to fall from the perfect state in which God created it. This in turn means that the world is subject to frustration and decay, as we are too. And anybody who lives on this earth knows that we're not yet transformed into the immortal stuff of eternal life. We get sick, we experience pain, we die. So this is why Paul says in verse 23 that adoption is a destiny that we've not yet attained. See, we groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, for the redemption of our bodies. And this redemption of our bodies is referring to us in our resurrection bodies, our glorified bodies, like the body Jesus has now for us in heaven. So that for means no more dieting. Woohoo! Come on, bring it. You see, we only need to look around us to see the world, as Paul prophetically said to the Roman church, even back then, that it's physically decaying and is spiritually infected with sin. It's groaning as in the pains of childbirth. However, please do not despair. This passage also encourages us to continually transform human life together with all creation into the fullness of God's intentions now. This process is painful and often messy, as the image of creation in labour implies. But the gift of new life is beautiful, but it does emerge out of struggle. Therefore, we have a responsibility, along with the help of the Holy Spirit, to look after the planet and await the new heaven and new earth. Now, you might say, Marcus, that's great. That's a gorgeous picture, but surely not attainable this side of glory. But then I recall, ask you to recall back in the early days of the pandemic when it would appear that creation was having a new Sabbath there was hardly any planes in the sky you could actually hear birdsong and actually it was like you could go and take a breath and for me I was looking around thinking yes Lord and this I think just underlines that see God has not yet finished with this world he's not finished with us And so despite recent events and struggles, as creation does, we too so move on and rebuild. And that is where our hope is. And our hope is in Jesus. And he helps us as we think about how we learn to live together and love each other. And so the next part of this passage, verses 24 to 28, speaks of our collective groaning and longing for something better. See, it's natural for children to trust their parents and the promises that they make. Although as parents or as godparents or grandparents or people, friends of children that we know we have, we don't always get it right, do we? But we don't have to worry about this with God. God always keeps his promises and he has a plan for each one of you. And this plan is the redemption of mankind through the gift of his son Jesus. Now it's understandable that we might be getting patient I know I do sometimes, for God's redemptive plan to unfold in our lives. But as this passage says, we need to be patient and place our confidence in God's goodness and wisdom that's in the here and now. Because of what he did in the past and what he has planned for our future. You see, what Paul is presenting here in these passages is that our salvation is past, present and future. It's past because we're saved the moment we believe in Jesus as our saviour and welcome him into our lives. 
as it says in verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. It's present because we are being saved. And again in verse 24, 24, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? In other words, this is the process of sanctification, the change that God makes in our lives as we grow in faith. As believers, we are free from sin's control. But we do recognise that as believers, we will struggle from time to time with sin. But, more importantly in this chapter in Romans, we see how we can have victory over sin. However, we've not fully yet received all the benefits and blessings of salvation that will be ours when Christ's kingdom is fully established. That's our future salvation as we see in verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So while we could be confident of our salvation, we can still look ahead with hope and trust towards that complete change of body and personality when we become like Christ. But the good news is that we're not on our own in the struggle. We also have the hope that the Holy Spirit is groaning right along with us and expressing our pain and our fears and our dreams to God as petitions too deep for us to put into words. See, the passage also invites us to consider the ways in which life in the Spirit empowers us to deeply engage with a hurting world, trusting that the Spirit is constantly working in human weakness to bring about God's full liberation and wholeness. And then in the following verses in 28 to 30, so this could be a whole new big sermon on its own of predestination and of free will. But as I think as we read in verse 28, God works in all things for our good. God calls to us, but it's down to us to respond. And a favourite picture of mine is by William Holman Hunt of Jesus standing with a lantern at a door knocking and what's great about that picture is that's Jesus knocking on the doors of your heart he wants to come into your life but he won't come in until you open the door and in that picture there is a handle on the other side you don't see it in the picture but God keeps knocking because he wants you to open the door and say come in and so for me the importance is down for us to respond. See, God is knocking at the door. Are you willing to open it and welcome him in? Will you allow the Holy Spirit to convince you to accept Jesus and to gain a new and fresh perspective on life? To see that whatever we are going through, God is with us in it. It's not for us to resent God, but instead trust that he wants only the best for us. He works for our good. However, I do believe that God's purposes for people weren't an afterthought. It was settled before the foundation of the world. That we are so, so precious to him. We are his children. You are his children. He loves you so, so much. As Mark says, he smiles when he thinks of you. He's smiling now. And he wants each one of us to know that we are loved and wants us, wants him, he wants us to return to him as a loving parent. 
So as we read in these final few verses of this chapter, what are we going to say in response to this? I look to all of you, how are you going to respond? See, what the amazing news is, if God is for us, who can be against us? But have you ever thought, nah, sorry, Marcus, I don't feel good enough. I don't feel that I'm good enough for God. I don't feel he's going to save me. I've done too many bad stuff. Or I've been naughty again. You actually feel probably salvation's for everyone else but you. So if you feel like that, or you even feel just generally rubbish and you just feel like, you know what, how can God love me? I've messed up again. And these last few verses are for you. Because if God gave his son for you, he isn't going to hold back the gift of salvation. If Jesus gave his life for you, he isn't going to turn around and condemn you either. God in his wonderful trinity will not hold, will not withhold anything you need to live for him. See, Jesus whose story brought us into God's family is the same story and the same one who ensures that God recognises his own image in us through Jesus' intercession on our behalf, as we see in verse 34. See, Paul also recognises that before this chapter reaches his powerful and final triumphant declaration, there will be powers and things that will try to attempt our, and block our full sharing in the eternal love and glory of Jesus, as we read about in verses 35 to 39. But these verses remind us that salvation is not merely a deliverance from unpleasant circumstances. It's actually a rescue from cosmic enemies. The powers didn't work, that are working in this world, the powers of sin that will do all they can to come against God's plan for human life and flourishing. Just remember, the resurrection of Jesus, God's great, I don't think so to these efforts of these forces that try but ultimately fail to prevent God's purposes for creation and for you. So can I encourage you to stand? Can I ask the band to come back? You see, as we look at these final verses in Scripture, in this reading, these verses reaffirm God's profound love for his people. His profound love for you. So no matter what happens to us, no matter where we are, we can never be lost to his love. Suffering should not drive us away from God, but help us identify with him further and allow his love to reach and heal us. As we read in verse 38 and 39, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So if proof be needed, these verses sums up the unconquerable love that God has for each of us. Jesus dying for each of us shows us that. And God tells us how great his love is so that we will feel totally secure in him. And if we believe these inassurances in verses 38 and 39, 
that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We need not be afraid. And as we're about to sing in a moment, that song, Reckless Love, meditate on these words. Because he says, there's no shadow you won't light up and no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you will not kick down or lie you won't tear down coming after me. That receiving, ladies and gentlemen, is God's unconquerable love for you. And so as you come forward for prayer, and there's going to be prayer to my right and your left, I'm mindful of the fact that you may be feeling that your ongoing relationship has got a blockage or that there's, you're muffled to the voice of God. Well, come and have me prayed for. Ask for those mufflers to be removed so you can hear clearly how much God loves you. You might be thinking, well, I don't know what my plan is for my life, Marcus. I've been wandering. Well, see, God keeps his promises. So come forward again. I'll be able to pray with you for, and ask for God to reveal that plan for you, the plan he has for you. Or you might be standing there this evening going, well, that's all great, Marcus, but my life's not good. Pretty crap at the minute, to be fair. I can't get that excited about God at the minute. Remember, you're his child. I had the blessing to do a baptism this afternoon, and I was able to pick up the beautiful child that I was baptizing and turn him around. And he just smiled at me and gurgled in a way that babies do. And as he smiled and did that, it reminded, gave me a picture that God was saying to me, this is how I love you, Marcus. This is how I love each one of you. I want to scoop you up. I want to cuddle you and tell you that you are loved. So if that's for you, do not leave this place this evening without feeling that, the arms of God around you. Don't feel separated. Come forward tonight. Come and reconnect with the God that loves you. The bestest dad. The one thing who thinks you're amazing. The one that won't allow a wall to get in the way or a door to get in the way or a lie. He's going to tear all that down and he'll come after you with his unconquerable love. Let's pray. So Lord, I pray tonight that as we respond, I pray, Lord, that we would remember that unconquerable love. Help us to know that you love us so, so much. And whatever we've gone through, whatever we're going through, that you want to come alongside us and scoop us up and remind us of that love, of that plan you have for us, of the direction that you want to give us. I pray for that for us tonight, Lord, that we would come forward tonight. Can I encourage you to come forward now if that's for you? And that people...